Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Stephen Lecce and Dr. David Williams, those twin commandos of communication with an update on education. Plus, vaccine nationalism and why that's a concern and celebrating Black History Month in Canada. Let's get to it. Well, hello and happy Monday, and I hope you're enjoying the beginning of the week, and I hope you kicked it off with those two giants of communication, the Minister of Education for the province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce, and the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario, Dr. David Williams. Man, those two together, that a laugh riot. Wow. Just getting up there and just shedding truth. I... I I don't even know where to begin. Here's how we begin with the announcement that we heard today. Is we got, you know, announcement this morning that there was going to be an announcement. So once you get an announcement of an announcement, then you get excited because you think, well, maybe this announcement is going to be what I need to be announced about. What This is the thing I want to hear, which is namely that kids might be going back to school. Because that's the thing that's weighing on parents right across this province, especially in the GTA. I know some school boards went back to in-person learning, but the vast majority of kids, those kids in Toronto and Peel and Hamilton and Windsor-Essex and so on and so forth, the so on, the, uh, the so-called hotspots, right now all we have is a kind of a loose date, February the 10th, that that is where the government is hoping. So we're all hoping today that we would get some kind of an announcement about whether or not that's going to happen. I could have told you in the lead-up to this, there was no way, there was absolutely no way this far out from that date that we would get a firm yes or no. I just thought, you know, the pandemic doesn't work that way. And I think if you've been paying attention, you know, the announcements that we get about whether school is on or school or off, school is off, it's all been just days before it happened. And I don't expect it to be any different this time. No matter how loud parents screamed about it last time around, was remember when it was like, oh, yeah, the kids will go back after Christmas for sure. No problem. Oh, wait, the kids aren't going back after Christmas. So the first question to Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, is he uh, outlines, after a technical briefing, all of this stuff about schools and support for schools. The first question to Stephen Lecce is, why in the world are you wasting our time? Like, no word of a lie, that was the first question. Like, Why are you even holding this press conference? What's the point here? Are kids going back to school or what, Stephen Lecce? Uh, in the context of the way forward, I, I think we're, we've been consistent that we want to get all students in all regions of our province back to school. That is a consensus position of our government uh, with the medical community. We heard clearly from the Council of um, Medical Officers of Health, and we agree with the premise. It is it important for children to be within schools for their mental health and their development. In the context of the way forward, what even are you talking about? Who talks like this? This is like, yeah, it sounds like, you know, first year marketing and, you know, the student forgot to do his homework and just figured, well, I'll just string together a whole bunch of big words here and that'll just fake them right out. It just kind of has that feeling to it. I hope you enjoyed that nothing burger for your lunchtime. Every time he gets up and talks, either Stephen Lecce or Dr. David Williams, I'm immediately reminded of the Peanuts cartoons. You know, Charlie Brown, every time they would encounter a parent or a teacher and wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. Over to you, Dr. Williams. Wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah
And so this technical briefing that they had this morning was essentially just to lay out all the things that we have done. Look at us. We've done great things. And it'll outline a couple of issues, things like well, kids, younger kids are going to have to be masks. You're going to have to get smaller masks for the younger kids. And one of the other things that they're going to change when kids do go back to in-person learning is no more hanging around before and after school, kids. No more you groups of youth stalled together. You're... You're freaking the rest of us out. You're no more pushing Sally on the swing. Don't don't go. You can't do that. That's not allowed. I don't know who's enforcing that. The minister was actually asked, "Who's going to enforce that?" And the, essentially, he said, "Well, peer pressure. That's that's how it's going to work. That's how that's going to work." Okay, so. <laughs> Here's the main question, though. There's two questions people have. One, first of all, when is school going back? And then if it does go back in February, what does that mean for March break? Are you going to continue with March break? Uh, because we've missed all this class. Is March break still on or off? I have so many questions. Please give me an answer, Stephen Lecce. We hope to provide that clarity to parents uh, based on the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health. That analysis is being done in real time. Oh, good. Good. The analysis is being done in real time. We're going to de-risk our circumstances, and in the context of the way forward, the development will be important. Fantastic. Well, you've passed first-year marketing, student Lecce. So, and then, so then Doc Williams gets up there, and I swear this, this, the the question is, the question is, are kids going to be able to go back to school on February the 10th in the hot zones? And, and keep in mind, I understand that kids in Ottawa, if you're listening to me in Ottawa, you know, congratulations, the kids went back. You know, other places that have already gone back. So the good doctor gets up there, and as is his want, what he does is he answers questions with questions. So you say, will kids go be going back? Uh, in mid-February, and, well, you know, he'll ask ask you a series of questions. Well, it, it depends, you know, is the sky blue? Uh, do clouds roll from left to right? We must look at the grass, and can the grass survive a couple more months of being under the permafrost? You know, and it just goes on and on. So here is actually the summation. This is what I do for you. I listen to the wah-wah-wah-wah-wah, so you don't have to. Here is the summation, a long, ponderous answer that essentially sums up by saying, you know, things are looking good, but still too soon. Here's Doc Williams. So we're hopeful that we're looking for that February 10th date with all things being in place. Well, there you go. See, we're hopeful. I hope I hope you've enjoyed this update. <sighs> well, the, the good news is, though, if you did listen to what he had to say, and, and you know, I, I make a lot of, I poke a lot of fun at Doc Williams uh, for his roundabout communication style, and he is incredibly difficult to understand what he's talking about. But what he said, what, what he said was the numbers are going in the right direction. Things are looking good. It's too early to say that February 10th is the date. But things are looking good. We have these new measures in place. We're going to get some rapid testing out there. And if everything is in place, then it is possible that maybe sometime on February the 10th, possibly things, I don't know. 
That's essentially what he said. Now, have you checked the calendar, by the way? Because I just did this today because I thought to myself, now, February 10th, what day of the week? Okay, that's a Wednesday. That is a Wednesday. Uh, And that following weekend, for those of you keeping score, is the family day long weekend. The, The 15th is the... I believe that's Family Day in Ontario, yes, because Family Day is different in some, in some parts of uh, the country. you got to check that. But the 15th is Family Day. Now, if you have kids in the system, you know that every time you have the Family Day weekend, they always tack a PA day on the Friday for what, you know, for professional development. Right. Yeah, sure. Not that, the, you know, you guys want to go away for Family Day, but fine, sure. I'll take the four-day weekend. So here's my question. If... If if school's going to be out the 12th and the 14th for a four-day weekend, and we're thinking of coming back on the 10th, what, are we going to come back for like one day, two days? That's not going to happen. So it's not going to happen. You can just mark that down right now. And then the question about March break was just no answer on that at all. No answer from the government at all. And we need to get kids back in class. I Man, if you if you got kids kicking around the house right now, crawling over you where you're trying to do some work you know what i'm talking about you know if you get a job where you're off and you get you know you actually are a central worker and you're going someplace else maybe you're driving somewhere maybe you're you know working uh, you know maybe you're ranting in a small closet in a basement in a, an industrial building in don mills like yours truly maybe that's what you do so you're not home all day long but those kids are home and it's had a real impact on them and the, our ability to work and daycare just just the mental health it, they got to get back they got to get back. That's got to be the number one thing. And then, so, so when asked about this, about this rapid testing thing, and, you know, when schools are going to reopen, basically, you know, the dynamic duo, Lecce and Williams, said it's going to be up to local public health, and they're going to have these uh, rapid tests that they're going to be able to deploy quickly. Yes, deploy them to the front line. Any school where they think there's a problem. But we do they have them already? We don't know. It, how are they going to deploy them? Deploy them? We don't know. How you know, are, are they going to just sweep through one school and go through another? Well, it's all up to individual local public health units. How do we know which public health unit is going to reopen at what time? Well, that's all up to the largely up to the public health medical officer of health. So your local medical officer of health, who's in charge? Who's in charge here? Welcome to Monday. And communication from the Ford government. Hooray. After a week of not receiving any COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer or BioNTech, shipments are due to arrive in Canada this week, but still fewer vials will be coming in than for first expected. That is also the same for Moderna as well. Uh, and across the world, that is part of the situation. And, and different countries are in different places. For example, I can tell you right now that Italy is beginning to reopen after pre-Christmas closures. Uh, the Vatican Museum's welcoming some people back. And that's not because they have done better with a vaccine rollout. They're not all inoculated. It's just that their numbers are down and they're lifting Lockdowns, obviously, you may know that in Alberta, they're going to start lifting a lockdown much before us. And all of it, 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 we're 
in this position now where the vaccine is kind of coming at fits and starts to various portions of the world, and then there is, you know, case counts at certain levels, and people are reopening, and places are reopening to some level or not. And it, we're all very, very anxious, are we not? And I'll tell you that the greatest immediate threat to the world right now is not the virus. It is the cure. Because a tide of protectionism that was underway before the pandemic is now threatening to become a tsunami. From the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, quote on Friday, vaccine nationalism might serve short-term political goals, but it's ultimately short-sighted and self-defeating. We will not end the pandemic anywhere until we end it everywhere. And research in December by the Eurasia Group found that leaving lower-income countries without access to vaccines during the pandemic is going to cause significant economic damage, not just for those regions, but for advanced economies as well. And a study by Northeastern University in Boston concluded that the monopolization of vaccines by wealthy nations, basically the rich nations of the world saying, ours, 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 we made it, it's here, it's ours, we get it all first. Vaccine nationalism. And that could cause almost twice as many deaths as distributing the vaccine Equally, the question might be for you, if you are in a cohort, you are not a frontline worker, you're, you know, you're not advanced in age, there's no reason that you would be front of the line to get a vaccine. So ask yourself this question, if you're like me, and, you know, no reason to be front of the line, should vaccines go to other portions of the world, poorer portions of the world, and make sure we get to those frontline people before we vaccinate Everybody here in Canada, would you be in support of that? Stephen Hoffman is a professor of global health law and a political science professor at York University. Welcome to the program. How concerned are you about vaccine nationalism, Steve? Well, first, Alan, thanks for having me on the program. The way you um, laid out the issues up front is exactly right. Uh, we should all be worried about vaccine nationalism. Um, you know, this is going to end up resulting in a very unfair, but also a very inefficient allocation of this vaccine around the world. For example, if we delay the time when healthcare professionals in other countries around the world are able to get access to this vaccine, we're only allowing the pandemic to spread, more people getting this virus, more opportunities for this virus to evolve and become resistant. Uh, to the measures we're taking, and so it'll end up being bad for all of us in the long run. If we accept that 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 is the case, and I I think that that people would, at the same time we run directly square into the reality that we have governments that are going to be under increasing pressure to provide the vaccine for homegrown distribution, and those governments will face increased political pressure. Just think of the kind of pressure Trudeau's government will be under later this year if the Canadian government cannot deliver on its province promise that anybody who wants it can get it by the end of September. That's exactly right. Uh, I mean, that's the situation that we uh, continue to find ourselves uh, during this pandemic, whereby what might actually be best for the world is not necessarily what's best for political leaders trying to satisfy the expectations of their citizens. And so this is something we've seen play out throughout the pandemic. It started with uh, medical masks, right? So who would have access to protected personal, personal protective equipment, 
Uh, would we allow the export or import of different things? Now we're seeing it with vaccines. Uh, and so um, I think that is a real challenge. I think, I mean, hey, I'm, I too want to get vaccinated uh, for COVID-19 as fast as possible. But I also know that the world overall will be better. And indeed, I'll be better off if we have a more efficient and more and fairer allocation of vaccine around the world, making sure at the very least that healthcare workers and those most vulnerable in every country are able to be vaccinated before those who are at lower risk start to get vaccinated. But of course, that's not how it's going to play out, unfortunately, and we'll all be poorer as a result. I'm speaking with Stephen Hoffman, who is a political science professor at York University. If we know what the reality is going to be, uh, which is that there will be an uneven distribution of the vaccine and the wealthy will get it first, what does that mean for peace in the world? What does it mean for politics uh, around the world? And will it have a lasting effect coming out of the pandemic? Well, that's something that uh, a lot of us are very worried about. You know, there's nothing that breeds conflict and resentment more than seeing an unequal uh, distribution of things, particularly when those things are determining the difference between life and death in many cases. I mean, this vaccine, uh, it's the extent that it's not fair and not efficient rollout, that will result in people's people dying, right, around the world. And so uh, I think this um, makes it more difficult to solve the various kind of global challenges that we see around the world for which we depend on global cooperation. I think on this issue today, uh, maybe Canada is, um, uh, will be okay because we're, we're, we're getting vaccine and there's lots that's been ordered and, and we will be able to get it quite soon. Uh, in greater quantities. But there's many other issues that Canadians care a lot about that will be more difficult to tackle without taking global approaches. And so to the extent that this vaccine deployment is very unequal, very unfair, and breeds a lot of resentments among other countries that have been totally shut out, that will then make it more difficult to get the collaboration of those same countries on issues that we care about, whether it's human rights, whether it's air pollution, the oceans, or or managing outer space, uh, that will be more difficult. And then we will need to think about how do we move forward on all these kind of issues that transcend national borders in the future. On protectionism, we we did see under the Trump administration a real move to protectionism right around the world prior to the, uh, the pandemic. Did you see the pandemic as super speeding up that, uh, you know, supercharging that trend? No, you know, I think that um, this pandemic has been a grand revealer of many things that existed prior to the pandemic, but which maybe um, we're just now seeing with a bit of a magnifying glass. For example, I think one of the things that's clearest about this pandemic is that, yes, it's a pandemic of a virus, but it's also a pandemic of inequities, of unfairness, of socioeconomic consequences, things that existed before, but which now we're seeing it in very stark terms. The same is the case for protectionism and and nationalism. And I think what we're seeing is before it might have been, um, well, sometimes it was even amusing to see some things in the newspaper headlines and on TV. We're now seeing the very real consequences of that kind of uh, harmful populism that has been bred in several countries, but is present uh, increasingly around the world in every country. So it's highlighting the real consequences of inequality and the real consequences of some recent developments that take us back in terms of solving 
global challenges for which we all need to work together. Stephen Hoffman, professor at York University, great to have you on the program. appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alan. Shall we check GameStop? Anybody? Anybody got your laptop sitting down in the bathroom, maybe doing a little investing, just maybe getting on there, just, you know, just pulling the old uh, the lever on the one-armed bandit because that's what day trading kind of is. It's gambling. It's gambling, folks. Everybody knows the GameStop story by now, right? I, I don't have to give you a complete background. Let me just check where we are. 251 $251 a share is where GameStop is, of course, uh, at its high. It was nudging up close to 500 bucks. I don't think it ever broke 500 480 It might have been its uh, high point. Down today, it was actually down to 213 It's low today and back up again. And so money is still pouring into that. Here's some, uh, some more details on what's going on with the whole GameStop rebellion, quote-unquote rebellion. Shorting shares in GameStop, the video game retailer at the center of the ongoing retail trading frenzy, has cost hedge funds a total of $12.5 billion over January. That is from the financial analytics firm Ortex. Here's what else is going on as the day traders chase cash. Silver. Silver has now broken through $30 an ounce for the first time since 2013 as an army of retail traders have now stormed into precious metals. Silver. I'm just going home and starting melting down some jewelry. Uh, and this week's wild Wall Street trading helped actually bail out Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Teachers, the pension plan, one of the biggest pension plans in the world. It had a real estate investment on his books, a really old one, basically a mall owner, and the thing was just languishing. It looked like a terrible bet. But this mall owner, it, all of a sudden, in part of the run-up of GameStop, on Reddit, they decided, well, listen, we should stick it to the short sellers, and we should run up the stock of this basically this mall owner, which is a landlord for GameStop. And that thing went on a run. So the ownership of that went up, and teachers used it to sell off its stake, uh, and it's pocketed $500 bucks. Five hundred million bucks, but still, it went up a lot further beyond that, uh, and missed, I think, another five hundred million in terms of its peak value. Well, look at that. The calendar says it is February the first. Goodbye to January. February is here. Time keeps marching on. It just seems like the same day, day in and day out. But we're going to get out of it. We're going to get out of the pandemic. The Vaccine is on the way. Things are going to get better. The numbers are getting better. The numbers were good again today. I won't give you, I won't bore you with the actual case numbers because once again, we have some kind of a data anomaly, data anomaly, data anomaly. And that means that the numbers are not 100% accurate. All you need to know is they're going in the right direction. So that's great news. Today, of course, as I mentioned, February the 1st. That means it's February, which means it is Black History Month. What does that mean in Canada? If you ask yourself about black history, you know, what comes to mind? Maybe a speech from Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, maybe stories about not being able to sit at lunch counters, Jim Crow. American stories might be the things that come to your mind. But there are other important stories to tell and to help me 
understand more about them, I am pleased to welcome back to the program B. Kwame, who is a broadcaster and writer, got a piece in Chatelaine, of course, can be heard on this radio station, on the radio program, Cultured Every Weekend, Saturday at 8 p.m. B., welcome. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, can I ask this question? I know it's kind of a, every year we ask this question, which is, is celebrating, um, picking a month and celebrating black history, is, is that a good thing? Is it something we should just do 12 months a year? Or is it positive to have this one month? You know what? It's it's positive to have a month that is dedicated to to these conversations and to this history and to thinking forward. The problem is when we think that all of those conversations and and things stop on March 1st. So we need to continue these things throughout the year, just in general, in in school curriculums and the conversations that we have throughout the media and and the books that we're reading, all of these different types of things. But I, I don't have an issue with having a month dedicated to it. We just can't stop at the end of February. I just really, really enjoyed your piece in Chatelaine. I recommend everybody read it. And I, I, I love that you addressed uh, African-American and being referred to as uh, an African-American and, and how you take that. Yeah, you know, I, I I have to give a big shout out to Denise Balkasun. She's the executive editor at, uh, at Chatelaine, and I worked with her on this piece. And when we were initially talking about it, that was one of the things that jumped out at me and from my own experiences have been, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Canada, but so many white Canadians have called me African-American uh, because I think there's this idea of being PC and that maybe calling somebody black is offensive. So it seems that African-American is a more PC term. But then I think about it and I'm like, I'm not American, though. So that, that still doesn't fit me. But what it points to and what I got into in this piece is how much we rely on <clears throat> American narratives around race and racism and how we absorb them here instead of looking at our own nuances in Canada. And, and that extends to the way we perceive ourselves as a, you know, racially harmonious nation. We like to think of ourselves as being, you know, the, the end stop on the Underground Railroad, but not necessarily about the kind of discrimination and racism institutionalized that we've had in this country and still do have in this country. Exactly, exactly. We do not have a robust enough uh, education when it comes to black Canadian history. I didn't learn until my adulthood that we had enslavement in Canada. I didn't know the names of enslaved people in Canada until my adulthood. Uh, I, I didn't know a lot about different aspects of discrimination in our immigration laws and, and all these different types of things that have been kind of par for the course throughout Canadian history, but have been hidden away because like you said, we have this great story of being the, the end stop of the underground railroad where enslaved folks from the U S wanted to end up. And that's very true, but we have to look at the other side of things too. There's, there's always a good and a bad side to the coin and to history. And we need to be able to tell all those truths. And so how do we balance that, B, from your perspective, when, when we talk about a month like this, where we mm-hmm. we both make a nod to Canada's, you know, differentiation between, you know, Americans and their mm-hmm. experience, but also a, a real reckoning from our own past? Yeah, you know, it, it a lot of it happens in school. So, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to say that throughout this month, I'm going to be doing a lot of different speaking engagements, and, and quite a few of them are at schools that are very 
hungry, um, you know, the educators that are very hungry for resources to be able to teach children these these types of stories so they understand a more fuller uh, and have a more fuller understanding of, of Canadian history as it relates to black folks. And just thinking about kind of the different dynamics between Canadian immigration, people who are newcomers, people who maybe don't even know that black Canadians have been here since the 1600s. There's so many stories to tell. So we need to start in schools as well so that kids are not waiting until their their 20s like I did to learn this history. But we need to have these things embedded in, in the books that we read, uh, the resources that we provide. Whenever I do panels and things like that, you know, folks always ask for resources of what they can read, who they can follow. And very often, American resources are named. We have a lot of people here who are doing activism, who are telling stories, who who have been doing that through history and continue to do that today. And we need to amplify those folks as well so we can learn more about what's happening right here in our own borders. Uh, you mentioned uh, Denise Balkasun, who I've had on the program in the past. I think I asked her this question when, when she was on. I, you know, in the wake of George Floyd and all the talk about anti-black racism um, and, and inclusion and all the rest of that, do you just, I just sense that sometimes you must just get tired of dumb questions from guys, you know, middle-aged white guys like me. <laughs> you know what? It's, you know, everybody is going to have a different answer to this. But yes, there are days when I'm very tired. And I'll, I'll tell you what makes me tired. Um, I'll, I'll say on the other hand, I, I don't mind when I when I have the energy and I, I'm in that moment to, to be able to provide a teachable moment to someone. I will definitely do it because I wouldn't want somebody else to continue in, in their you know very basic ignorance and harm somebody else. But I think that what folks need to do as we're continuing this listening and learning, as we've been hearing throughout the summer and, and, and since George Floyd, especially is to understand that you have to take your ego out of it. Very often I end up in uh, uncomfortable conversations with folks who have maybe made a blunder or they're realizing there's something that they didn't understand. And instead of listening to my perspective, it turns into, uh, you know, kind of the sob story. Oh my goodness, I feel so bad. I can't believe I made that mistake. I can't believe I didn't know this. You know, I'm just, you know, this middle-aged white man and this is the life I've led and I've never been exposed to these things, then it turns into it's all about you and it's all about what you know or what you don't know. And now I'm comforting you about what you don't know instead of you <laughs> taking the time to listen to me sharing my perspectives and, and education, then the energy shifts. So that's what makes me very tired. I think we really have to have a reckoning with understanding, you know, responsibility and accountability and removing your ego from it as you're, as you're learning as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If you're talking about yourself, you're not doing much learning at the time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, B, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the program. Really appreciate it. Please take care. Awesome. You too. Thanks so much for having me. That is B. Kwame, who is a writer and broadcaster. She can be heard on this radio station on Saturday nights at 8 p.m. on the program Cultured, and you can read her new story. Uh, and her uh, contribution, which is online right now and in the magazine Chatelaine. So well, thanks again to B. Well, we're just about out of time here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. Uh, we began the program talking about the communications from the province uh, and the uh, the announcement, the non-announcement really in many ways from Stephen Lecce and the Minister of Education. No real news about whether kids will be going back to school uh, in the hot zones, we are expecting on February the 10th. They say it's a possibility, but still 
too early to say. There were other announcements in there, though, and, and I think there are some important bits in there, things like more mask requirements for younger kids, uh, you know, different requirements in and around schools, also changes in, you know, who can be a teacher, can you uh, get new teachers into the schools faster or part-time or occasional teachers. Some of those things have been changed and also details on rapid testing. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget, The Alan Carter Show, weekdays starting at noon.